turn to Luke 24, verse 13 and following. It reads like this. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took, bread, took the bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Let's pray. Lord God, we have in this text today, Lord, a beautiful, um, Lord, a, this beautiful and amazing picture of Christ revealing himself to his followers um, in this rather obscure location, in this rather obscure way. Lord, we see here the beauty and the truthfulness and the reality of the resurrection. Um, Lord, I pray as we study these words today, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, and a heart to understand what your word has given to us today uh, through the pen of Luke. And Lord, I ask that you would be glorified as we study, as I preach, and that, Lord, you would keep us from wrong understanding. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So these two individuals in our text here today, in Luke 24, um, are, as I said, rather obscure individuals. They are not two of the apostles, but two other individuals. And uh, it, I think it's helpful for us to, to set the stage a little bit, begin to understand this setting, and we see just how unique this situation is. We, we know, first of all, as the text says, the, that very day, the two of them were going to a village uh, named Emmaus. This means that on the Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead was when these two individuals were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. This journey, as our text tells us, of about seven miles, uh, uh, probably a couple hours worth of walking. 
and as they were walking, these two individuals encountered Christ on the road. These two people, and as I said, uh, we don't know who they are, and we don't even know that they were both men. We know one named Cleopas by our, uh, in our text uh, was a man, but the other one, we have no idea. In fact, some have speculated that this could have been Cleopas's wife, but we don't know. Frankly, uh, we are given two obscure individuals that uh, even Cleopas, though he's named, um, is mentioned maybe one other place in Scripture, and that being in John, and um, some people don't even know for sure that that's who John is talking about when his name is mentioned. This is really a seemingly random and obscure place, an obscure way for Christ to appear. Two disciples who were not of the 12 apostles, two uh, men who were alone on this journey from one town to another. This was not a, uh, a very high-profile sighting of, uh, of the resurrected Christ. And yet here we are. In many ways, this is uh, what I have labeled as point number one, an unexpected visit. As these two men are walking along the way, they're busy discussing all the things that they'd experienced as, uh, as the past few days had transpired, talking about Jesus being delivered over, crucified, uh, and then the empty tomb being discovered uh, by the women and then by the other disciples. There was a lot to process in all of this. They were trying to wrap their heads around this past week where from the beginning of the week, people were shouting, Hosanna, son of David. They were worshiping Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. But then just a few days later, the same crowd was shouting for Jesus' crucifixion as the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had stirred them up. There was a lot to process. Then as Jesus was crucified and and everything else happened, then the Passover on the same day, As these men were processing this experience, that's when Jesus showed up and began walking alongside them. But the text says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It wouldn't have been all that uncommon for someone to be walking along this road along with them. In fact, it was um, pretty customary to to walk in a group. You'd walk with other people along the road to to lower the risk of being robbed or or having anything wrong uh, happen. But as these men are, are walking in this, what seems to, be, that seems to them to be just a man comes walking alongside them, but it's actually Jesus, their eyes were, were kept from recognizing him. If you've been coming to our theology class on Tuesday nights, you'll know that we've been talking about the resurrection uh, recently, just this past Tuesday. And one of the things we noted was that our resurrected bodies, as Paul tells us, will be like Christ's. And one thing that we know about Christ was that he was resurrected in his actual physical body. That the fact that the disciples didn't recognize him here is not indicative of the fact that Jesus was in some completely different looking body, that he looked nothing like himself before his death. But what we know about Christ is that he actually looked like Christ. He was recognizable. He was raised in his body, though glorified, but it was still his body that had been glorified to the point that he even says to Thomas, if you remember, look at the scars in my hands, the wound in my side, put your hand here, that even the scars that Jesus had on the cross were still present. He was definitely recognizable. He was not in some unique, uh, unrecognizable fashion, but he had risen bodily, and yet the disciples were kept from recognizing him, and it leaves us to ask why this was. The fact that these two disciples couldn't recognize Jesus is not indicative, uh, is not an indication that he was 
in some other body or that he was just wholly unrecognizable, but rather they were unable to recognize him because God affected their senses in order to keep them from it. It was God who kept their eyes from seeing that this was their resurrected Savior. This serves as a demonstration of, of, frankly, our utter dependence on God for all things, even for things as basic as being able to see and trust our brain and our eyes to know what we're seeing. That these men demonstrate for us that apart from the will and power of God, we are unable to see, we can't hear, we can't taste, we can't smell, we can't breathe. It is only for God's sustaining providence that we can do anything. The moment God stops determining by his will, according to his providence, that we be able to see, that we be able to smell, that we be able to walk, whatever it is, we cease to be able to do it. All that we are able to do, even down to the point of seeing, is according to God's sovereign power and his will. And this is a demonstration of that power and of that will here. This is a greater manifestation of of the power that we see Jesus demonstrating on the Sea of Galilee when the storm rises up and and his disciples who are afraid wake him. And uh, what does he do? He simply says, be still. And the waves cease and the storm dissipates. Even more than that, God has power even over our own senses. He has power over all things, over the physical, over the spiritual, over everything. God has power, and this is a demonstration of that. As Jesus, uh, by his providence, according to his will, makes it unable for these men to recognize him. Jesus then proceeds to butt in on their conversation, and he, he asks them what they're talking about. What is this conversation that you're having between yourselves? Which uh, I think then provokes a a super ironic response from from Cleopas at this point where he asks Jesus, he says, although he doesn't know it's Jesus, he says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? How ironic that question is, that Cleopas has just asked Jesus, who was the one who was who was worshipped coming into Jerusalem, who was uh, crucified on the cross at the hands of the Romans, who rose again from the dead. He was asking this question, are you the only one who doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem this week? He was asking this question to the only person who actually really knew what happened in Jerusalem that week. It's so ironic that he would ask Jesus this question in his blindness and his inability to see who he was talking to. And Jesus, uh, uh, it gets a little cheeky with him, I think, as he uh, gives this response, and he says, what things? I think this is, this is a hilarious response to me. I think this is, this is evidence of, of Christ's uh, sense of humor. This is like something I would do with Kaylee when she's asking me a question that I obviously know the answer to, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And it drives her up the wall, right? Jesus gives this answer to these disciples, provoking for them, hey, why don't you go ahead and tell me? Tell me. Maybe I am the one person. That what are you talking about? It's like uh, the, in the movie Young Frankenstein, uh, when Igor uh, is meeting uh, Mr. Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, for the first time, and, uh, and he said, you know, I'm a, a rather accomplished surgeon. I could help you with that hump uh, to Igor. And Igor says, what hump? As he stands there, obviously a huge, unavoidable hump on his back. That seems to me almost like what Jesus is doing. He knows full well what happened, and yet uh, he still insists. He wants to draw out from his disciples from his followers, tell me what it is that happened. He has a plan to reveal to them. As they explain to him the details, he's going to reveal to them their ignorance even in the details. 
And so they do offer him this explanation, what I have called in point number one, the most useless explanation ever. And I call it this, uh, not because these weren't good details, not because uh, there wasn't good reason for him to offer this, but because of the irony that Jesus is the only one who actually knows what happens, and yet these disciples are now going into detail, explaining to Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, what all happened. And they give all the details very well. So it's useless, not in the sense that, uh, that they shouldn't have given it or that they were fools for giving it, but it's, it's useless in the sense that Jesus knew full well all of this. But he had a different reason for, for asking, for prodding it out of them. In their description, these two disciples, uh, as they are describing the events, they describe Jesus as a prophet, mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people. This is an interesting description, interesting way of describing Jesus as a prophet. For indeed, this was a partial truth. Jesus was a prophet. It is not a wrong statement to say that Jesus came and was a prophet, but it is a wrong statement to say that Jesus was merely a prophet. Jesus was a prophet, but he was more than just another prophet. He was the prophet predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, the one who Moses said would come and, and be like him, but far greater than him and do far more than he had done. He was the one who had come not just to pro, proclaim the word of God to the people, but he had come as the word of God to the people. True revelation. This is who Jesus was. So he was a prophet, but he was not merely a prophet. And I, I don't think that these two were trying to slight Jesus in describing him as a prophet. They were they were simply working with their understanding. They were working in their knowledge of the details that they had. There was just something missing in their understanding. There was something lacking. And what this highlighted also was that their faith had been shaken in Jesus because in verse 21 we see them say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They describe him as a prophet and perhaps only stop there because seeing Jesus' death, they think, well, maybe, maybe that is all he was. Maybe he wasn't the one. In verse 21, they said, we had hoped, but it seems as though their hope had been shaken. Their hope had been, had been hurt. The seeds of doubt had risen up in their heart. Because these two, like many of the Jews of their time, were looking for a Messiah that, spit a, that fit a specific mold. The picture that they had in their minds was of a Messiah uh, who would come as a conqueror, as a conquering savior, as a warrior, one who would lead some revolution and rise up against their oppressors and lead them to victory and to battle and to ultimate glory and, and awesome celebration. Their schema for what the Messiah would be did not ever involve him dying, especially dying the way he did on a cross at the hands of of Romans, the fact that Jesus had died caused many of his followers, followers to begin to question whether he was truly the promised one or not. Would the promised one come and die like this? According to their understanding, the answer was no. But the problem is that their understanding was lacking. They believed, but there were pieces missing that they needed put in place. Verse 21 indicates that these men had faith, but that it had, been, it had been severely shaken as Christ was in their minds right now dead. 
to the point that even the fact that there was an empty tomb did not come as I hoped to them, but simply served to increase their despair. Their faith had been shaken, much like uh, Jesus had predicted when he spoke to Peter and said, Satan is going to sift you. Indeed, Satan had sifted not just Peter, but all of Jesus' disciples. All of them were shaken, were stirred up, were agitated to the point that only their faith caused them to remain. Only their faith caused them to hang on. Their faith that was provided by Christ. And these two individuals had a real faith, but like many believers, even today, they were experiencing doubt. They were experiencing concern. They were lacking hope and assurance. But good thing Jesus did not leave them there. He did not leave them in their despair. He did not leave them lacking hope, lacking assurance. Instead, Jesus fills in the gaps in their understanding. Jesus starts, as we come to point number three, where we see their eyes were opened. Here, Jesus starts with a quick rebuke. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. This is a rebuke, but frankly, not as bad as you might think it would be, as these men have just uh, openly expressed that their hope was failing, their hope was lacking in Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised one. Jesus could have very easily been like, well, I'm done with you then. You don't believe in me? All right, that's the end of that. You didn't actually believe or understand what the scriptures had spoken. That's on you. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. But then Jesus basically reminds them of all the things that he had already told them. That this was necessary for him to suffer and to die and that he would on the third day rise again. And Jesus now is beginning to expand their mental schema so that they uh, can understand and fit the true Messiah into it. He's breaking their mold of what they thought the Messiah would be at this time and opening their eyes to what the true Messiah came to do, how he came to suffer and die for sinners. Then what Jesus does in order to make his point and fill in the gaps of their understanding, what does he do? He takes them to Scripture. He opens up the Old Testament. He opens up Moses and the prophets. As verse 27 says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, in order to fill their gaps, in order to increase their understanding, takes them to the Old Testament, to the law and the prophets, the scriptures that they already had but had missed it, had missed the Messiah in those scriptures of what he would be, of what he would come to do, of what he would look like. One preacher calls this the greatest sermon never recorded. For Jesus, is, is all we know here is that he opened up the scriptures, opened up Moses and the prophets and interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. But we aren't told what he said. Wouldn't that be an awesome sermon to hear? I think it would be so cool to get to sit under the teaching of Christ as he preaches Christ from the Old Testament. This is one of the coolest and most instructive statements of this passage for us today because notice that what Christ does first in order to convince his disciples of Christ's redemption and salvation and of his resurrection is he takes them to the Old Testament and begins to preach himself from the Old Testament. I had uh, an Old Testament survey class at Southern Seminary uh, where I got to sit under the teaching of a man named Dr. Jim Hamilton who is an extremely, extremely proficient 
Bible teacher, an Old Testament scholar. If you ever want to hear what he sounds like and how good his teaching is, you can tune into uh, a podcast called Bible Talk that's put out by Nine Marks, where him and another guy simply teach the Old Testament together. And, and that is what he did in his Old Testament survey class, where basically Dr. Hamilton started at Genesis and made his way through the entire Old Testament. And what did he do primarily? He pointed to Christ in the Old Testament. He preached and taught Christ in the Old Testament, just like Christ did here today. Jesus does the same thing, only way better. It, I loved that class. I loved getting to sit under Dr. Hamilton, who was a very uh, proficient, very good, very talented speaker, very uh, efficient, very trustworthy teacher. But as much as I look up to him, he is nothing compared to Christ and how Christ probably taught the Old Testament, that he taught himself from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you see, is full of Jesus. And it's important for believers today. There are some people who find the Old Testament to be of little or no value to Christians today. And on top of that, many find it and say that it's hard to understand. And indeed, at times it is. But the reason that it's hard to understand, the reason that it's uh, many times seems to be unimportant is that we read it in the wrong way. You see, if you read the Old Testament today, and you read it purely as a, as a set of rules given to the Jews, or if you read it purely as history, as, okay, this is something that, that took place then, but doesn't bear much uh, impact on my life today, then you're not reading the Old Testament correctly. You're not seeing it for all that it's worth, and you're not going to understand it correctly. Jesus found it to be important and of value for believers to read and understand the Old Testament. Why? Because it testifies to Christ. It is about Christ. This also gets at the heart of why many believers have a hard time understanding the Old Testament and find it to be useless. It's because they don't read it with Christ in view. They don't read it through the lens of Christ. If you're reading the Old Testament and you're not reading it through the lens of Jesus Christ, the risen Messiah, the Savior of the world, then it's like watching a 3D movie without 3D glasses. It's just gonna give you a headache. That's all that's gonna happen. You're never gonna see it truly and rightly and understand it apart from Christ. Christ gives us the guide for a proper hermeneutic of the Old Testament, a proper way of understanding and interpreting the law and the prophets and that hermeneutic, that guide is Christ. He himself is the means by which we understand and see the beauty and the glory and rightly read the Old Testament. This is the reason why Paul in Romans 10.4 calls Christ the end of the law. The point being that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The point of the gospel is not that the law and the prophets are worthless, but that the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ. That he is the end of those things, that they point to him that he is the satisfaction of the law and the promised one that the Messiahs looked to and pointed to. We see that Christ is the better Adam. He is the better Moses, the better David. Jesus is the true temple, the true temple, the true ark that saves sinners, the true seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, and the true lamb of God that was sacrificed for sins. You see, these men failed to see, even as they had just celebrated the Passover, and looking at all the sacrifices that were made under the 
Old Testament system, all the blood that was shed through the Old Covenant, all of it was recognizing the reality that because of sin, and in order for sins to be forgiven, blood had to be shed. Therefore, Christ had to die. And as we see Jesus teaching them, bringing their understanding to bear, filling in the gaps, Jesus points to them, Jesus opens up to them the reality that he is the point of the Old Testament, that he is the reason that the Old Testament was written. All of it points to him. In verse 31, we see as Jesus now is dining with them, breaking bread, we see in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This is an amazing uh, event now as Jesus, as he's walked with them on the road and then as he was gonna, as he pretended, as our text tells us, to walk further in order to get them to, to plead with him to come and to, and to rest with them and stay there for the night. So they plead with him and he comes in and as he is with them and they sit down to eat, Jesus does something that sounds and, and looks very familiar to something that he has done many times before where Jesus took the bread and he broke it and blessed it. This ought to recall us back to uh, just a few days earlier of the Lord's Supper when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples in the upper room, completely and radically changing the meaning of the Passover forever, demonstrating to them that he was the Passover lamb, that he was the one by whom sins are forgiven. We observed also when Jesus uh, prayed over the bread and broke it, blessed it, and then fed thousands as he blessed the food when he was preaching. This is what Jesus does, and it is in this moment when their eyes are opened as Jesus blesses this food and gives it to them. But really, this was the cherry on top. The fact that Jesus did finally reveal to them who he was really was the final step. It was the cherry on top. He had already enlivened their spirits, already boosted their confidence by the truth of Scripture. Now he gave them one final bit of convincing proof that all of this was true, that the scriptures were true, that they had reason to trust and to hope, and he did so by revealing to them, here I am. Jesus, at the end of it all, after declaring to them the scriptures, boosting their faith, causing their hearts to burn, as the text says, then says, oh, by the way, here I am. All of this is true, but... It was the text of scripture, it was the truth of God's word written in scripture that was actually the thing that brought clarity, that brought understanding, that brought hope back into the life of these men. Jesus almost could have left and not revealed himself and they would have been in the right place. They believed because of what Jesus explained to them from the scriptures. It was that that boosted their hearts, it was that that caused their hearts to burn, not simply Jesus' presence, but the fact that the truth of scripture was opened up to them and their eyes were opened. That was the medicine that Jesus gave to these men to cure their doubt and increase their faith. It was a revelation. It was the word of God. First the word of God as written in scripture, but then the word of God as Jesus himself was revealed to them, the living word as John 1 calls him. And like I said, notice that their hearts were burning before Jesus revealed himself. While he was teaching them the scriptures, that was when their hearts began to burn. 
The Bible is the means by which we are brought to a right understanding and knowledge of redemption. It is the means by which we are brought to a right and proper understanding of Christ and that our hope in the resurrection is built. It is built on Jesus Christ, the reality of his resurrection, but revealed to us by the truth of Scripture. The Bible is how we come to see and come to understand Christ truly and rightly. And once they were started on it, these men couldn't get enough. We see in verse 29 that they urge him to stay with them and continue to teach them and cause their hearts to burn. And we have to ask ourselves the question, do we have a hunger for God's word the way these men did? Do our hearts burn within us when we read the word of God, when we see the risen Lord revealed in the text of scripture, when we see the beauty of the Old Testament as it points to Christ as the coming promised one, the Messiah, the one by whom sins will be forgiven, the one by whom whom we will have victory, the one that will cause us not to have to earn our salvation, not to have to sacrifice any more animals because he will be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Does that cause our hearts to burn? I pray that it would be so. And in those times when you recognize that your heart is not set ablaze by the word of God, pray. Ask that the Lord would set your heart on fire as you read his word, as you study his word, that your eyes would be open, that your understanding would be complete of Christ, the risen Lord. There are some of us in here who are like these followers of Christ, who have some understanding, but frankly are lacking, lacking in a full understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. And I would urge you today, open up the scriptures as Jesus did. Look in the Old Testament and see Christ and him as the fulfillment of the law, as the fulfillment of the prophets. Open up the New Testament and see the reality that is true of believers, of those of us who have trusted in him for our salvation and the hope and the assurance and the confidence that we have to draw near the throne room of God. All the while praying, asking God, open our eyes to see. And then there are others of us, others of you in here today who are more like Bartimaeus in chapter 18 of Luke. If you remember the story of Bartimaeus, this blind beggar on the side of the road entering Jerusalem, who was not simply lacking in the ability to see rightly, but was utterly blind, was without sight. And the story of this man, Bartimaeus, who had nothing that he could do but sit on the side of the road, and when he heard that Jesus was passing by, could do nothing but cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And as the people told him to be quiet, Jesus doesn't have time for you, Jesus is busy. He cries out all the more and all the louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stops what he's doing. He takes time for this nobody, this blind beggar Bartimaeus, and restores his sight instantly. If you are in here today and you are blind with regards to Christ, he is able to open your eyes to the reality of his resurrection, of his salvation, of redemption that is available in him. We need to only say, Lord, open my eyes. Grant me sight. And he is gracious and he will do it by the power of Christ. The same way he did for these men as he opened their eyes. God can open up the eyes, can soften the heart of even the worst of sinners, even the hardest of hearts. Let's pray.